0: The most important decisions of consequence, you're not going to make everyone happy and being okay with that and having a consistent mindset, because one of the most important things as a leader is that, is that you're consistent, that whenever someone comes to you for a decision that they already know what you're going to say.
1: Hey, Jeff, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Most certainly. So to my audience who may not have met you before, can you share with our audience a little bit about who you are? Sure.
0: I'm Jeff Paeta. I I grew up in the uh, southwest suburbs of of Chicago in Brookfield. I uh, started selling uh, greeting cards and stationery when I was uh, 12 years old and uh, became uh, a nerd in high school. went to University of Illinois at Chicago for uh, one semester. And that was the fall of 2001. then after September 11th happened, the dot-com bubble burst, I decided to drop out and start my first company. And I've been on an entrepreneurial journey uh, ever since, which was uh, about 20 years ago this year.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. I graduated in 2001 with an undergraduate degree in computer science, and I had the pretty same experience as you because I was looking for jobs, couldn't find one because most tech companies weren't hiring. Mm -hmm. because the dot-com bubble, right, that really did, plus the September 11 also, that screwed up the the whole economy for all of us.
0: That's true. I I remember thinking at the time that that when you have nothing to lose, then that's the best time to take a risk, because I, I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm broke, and I'm living with my parents, and if I start a company and it completely fails, I'll still be broke and living with my parents. That's why... You hear more stories of you know rags to riches instead of middle class to riches. That's why Jim Collins wrote the book from good to great. That most people they have they don't have great lives because they have good lives, and and that complacency is usually what what holds people back. And so when when you've got nothing to lose, then then that's the time when when you should try and take a risk. And, and I remember thinking that you know if, if I could survive in in a recession economy, in that economy, I could survive in any economy, and that really came in handy in a way because. You know, starting out when everything is great, then you don't know: are you really good, or are you just riding the economic wave? And then, when when that dries up, you're going to be in trouble.
1: Yeah, and I think you know some some people don't have the luxury of having you know living in a wealthy home with uh, with the with the you know the dad already running a company and then taking over the family dynasty and all that, right? So you kind of have to to build from scratch. Um, that that's really is the story of many of the American dream.
0: Absolutely, and I think I think that that for for each person, it, it's about finding you know finding their own meaning and finding their their own challenges, regardless of of the situation from from where you start. That doesn't have to be where you end. And you know, in particular for people that grew up like I did, one of the reasons why I like going back to UIC and and, and talking to the kids and guest lecturing is is to tell them that that when you come from you know from, from nothing, anything that you do is significant. Like if. Mm-hmm. If you you know your your dad was was Steve Jobs and he created the iPhone, even if you do something r- really great, no one's gonna really notice. And, but yeah, and, and so that, that that's to help motivate the people that that you really need the, the the most motivation.
1: Most certainly. So let's talk a little bit about that the company you started. So I know you started a company right out you know without even finishing a college, and you had a very successful exit before this current company that you're running. You share with our audience a little bit about. The company that you recently sold shift gig and what was the company about and the story of building that and sure, that
0: sure. So, so um uh, shifting was actually the the second company uh, that, mm. that i started and that was back in uh in really in 2011 and i remember it was around the time when uber came to chicago and i remember thinking like okay why why uber and, and i remember at the time Uber was like probably the third or fourth iteration of a taxi, you know, hailing app that that I tried, and because I remember there was an app called Halo that I used a couple of times, and then cabs, you know, would uh, and then it would be like pick up someone else, and then it didn't work, and so I stopped using it. And it's okay, so why is this Uber going to work? And, and you know, it, it, it did start working, and so I remember thinking, okay, like why did Uber succeed when Halo and other apps failed? And it was the, the differences were very minute, um in particular how they they held the drivers accountable, so that the drivers were. Would would pick up someone that requested a ride instead of someone else that was just getting on the camera. but but then from a from a bigger standpoint, like what did it represent? And I remember thinking back in 2011 that it was only you know, in a few years that the smartphone industry consolidated because you know the iPhone came out in 07, you know, Android came out in, in 08, and Uber was was founded at the beginning of 2009. Now the founder of Uber had nothing to do with the creation of iPhone or Android. But sometimes innovation is recognizing when new dots exist that they can then be connected in a way that allows for a solution that previously wasn't possible or wasn't uh, wasn't feasible. Because if you think about the the mid to late you know, early first decade of the twenty first century, there was you know a dozen smartphone platforms. There was the the Blackberry. There was the the Kyocera. There was the Sidekick. And so c- trying to create an app for all those different platforms that wasn't feasible. And then also the devices were really slow. They didn't have enough uh, processing power. The screens weren't big enough. There's keyboards and also cellular data was too slow. And so it was really not until like around like 2010 that the the smartphone market quickly consolidated that even by 2010, about 75% of the smartphone market was either iPhone or Android. So you go from this extreme fragmentation to being consolidated to two. And so, you know, thinking about that and then thinking about, you know, what else does this enable? And, and I also noticed that um, with, with Uber, the Uber drivers were, were, pe- were mostly people that otherwise would not drive a cab. And that's a question that I would like to ask of the Uber drivers initially. It's like, okay, if Uber didn't exist, would you be a cab driver? And most of them said no. And so I saw that that meant that Uber was expanding the labor supply. And so because this app exists, they expanded the supply, they also expanded the demand. So that, that creates a lot of value in, in that marketplace. And it's not that the, the Uber drivers are unskilled. It's that they were non-specifically skilled because you're, I was just as likely to get a professional or an engineer or a college student. Um, it, it was not unskilled. And so, so then the idea was, well, what if it was the Uber concept, but without the car? What if like, cause Uber was work when you want, where you want, as low or as much as you want driving. But what if you could do all that, but without driving? Mm-hmm. And and so that's when we, we started talking with you know some of the largest Fortune 500 companies that that spent uh, the most on on temp temp staff, which at the time the US market was about $120 billion a year in contingent labor. About uh 30% of that was considered light industrial temp labor. And so we figured that that would be the easiest area to tackle initially um with non-specifically skilled work. And, and we found very positive reception uh, initially with um, you know, some of the different types of challenges that esports 500 companies had in managing their spend and their budgets, um, as well as having greater convenience and, and flexibility with using the app. But while consumers liked the convenience of using the Uber app, uh, the, the businesses were more interested in expanding the, the labor supply, particularly for areas or for types of positions that they had trouble filling. Um, as as well as having more accountability and control in reporting and management. Um, so that that was uh, that that was the initial initial idea. Sometimes it's better to be over prepared than under prepared.
1: Yeah. So I would have thought a company like you know Kelly or Manpower or one of those companies would have thought about this idea before you did, right? Because they were already in this business of temp labor. They already had the supply. They just they probably already had the demand because they already had. Like, you know, government contracts and massive, you know, Fortune 100 contracts with those all those organizations. How come sometimes these big companies aren't very innovative? If you think about that,
0: so so you know, that, that that's that's a great point, and and I think that that the there there's a reason why big companies tend to buy innovation than create <laughs> innovation. Um, I I would say that that the one of the main reasons is because. Big companies have to manage risk more so than startup, startup companies. And when there's a new idea and the risks aren't entirely known quantities yet, it's very difficult to for a large company to get legal on board with wanting to try something new that that's unproven. Because you know, ask a lawyer about something that hasn't been litigated or hasn't been proven yet. Like it, it's it's hard to get them excited about that. Um, additionally. Uh, it, it, it's it's hard within a large organization where there's a lot of stakeholders, there's a lot of buy-in that's needed to to really to drive innovation. And very few large companies are, are, are able to do that. And so that's why you typically will see innovation happen with smaller companies until it becomes a known quantity, until it's proven out, that, then a bigger company goes and, and, and buys it.
1: Yeah, and I'm seeing companies like uh, I know Google had, I forgot what they called it, but they had like, an, you know, internal innovation labs and whatever they call that. And they had like Fridays where for like innovating and creating. And I think Gmail was one of those products that came out of that. I think even Chrome may be one of those. And I know HubSpot is trying to do the very same thing, you know, Sidekick, which is currently the HubSpot sales hub. Uh, was actually a side product that was created by some somebody internally ba- made a product, made it available for free, and then turned it into a, a mega giant company today, right? So it's crazy how some of the companies are trying to, in, you know, and in, to increase the likelihood of having innovation happen within these big organizations. Yeah,
0: I, I think it's, a, it, I mean, it's interesting for, to try to innovate innovation itself, and, and I, I think that the, that the right answer is to have multiple strategies like these companies do. Whether they're trying to incubate internally, or whether more commonly they they have a, a venture arm where they're they're making direct investments um, in, into startup companies, um, you know, not only so that they they you know can share in the potential upside uh, for them, but so that they're also participating and and, and that they have um, an understanding of and a, and a sense of feel on, on the market, on you know what what are what are the, the new innovative trends and what's working, and then also. Um, you know, who are the people that are, have a track record of being successful? Because uh, to, to, to get investment in, in any, any startup, you know, the decision for a professional investor usually comes down to, to credibility in two areas. It's credibility in the idea and credibility in, in the entrepreneur and the ability to execute. Um, because, you know, for example, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, uh, it could be a, a great idea, very viable, scalable idea with, with a big market. But if you don't have a lot of credibility, that, that can be tough. Um, or, you know, it could be Elon Musk and, and, and he can you know, come up with, with a, you know, an idea for selling screen doors in a submarine. And, and someone will give him money because he has so much of credibility as an entrepreneur. And so it's, it's understanding, you know, that it really comes down to both of those parts for professional investors. For non-professional investors, um, you know, it's, it's personal relationships.
1: Yeah. So obviously ShiftK got a very successful exit and that was probably the one company that you sold, right? So going into it, did you know that you were gonna have an exit or was that just like the outcome that finally came about?
0: So I, I think that that it's important to to understand that what it means when you raise funds and when you take money and that what the expectations of that investor are. Um, the same way that when you in- enter into any relationship, whether, whether personal um, or whether, whether business with employees or with customers, to make sure that both sides have the same expectations. Because when there's a mismatch, that tends to become a distraction at best. And professional investors that are, that are you know, deploying capital from, from a fund, they, they themselves, in raising those funds, assuming it's not a family office set expectations with their limited partners on, you know, an internal return rate and also a a time horizon of when to expect that. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's important to know, you know, where are your investors in deploying capital is, is, you know, are, are they just start in a a new fund or are you, you know, one of the last investments of a fund and, you know, their time horizon is, you know, looking at, you know, the next three to five years, just just to have a, a sense because it avoids, um, a, a, where, where what also could be a distraction is anytime you're raising money, you have a group of investors that you need to get them all on the same page with the same terms. And you know, generally, one will step up as a lead to, to help you know herd hurt, hurt all the cats um, because they have to agree to the same terms for the same round. And and if you have investors that have different sets of expectations, that can make that part a, a lot challenging. And and as an entrepreneur, the hardest aspect of that is it's not it's not directly adding value to the business in terms of it's not moving the business forward. Raising, spending time raising money, you're you're spending time to yourself. You're, you're you're not you're not furthering your product. You're not you're not learning about the product market fit. I mean, investors are great for for providing advice for providing introductions, but but it's it's not moving the business forward. It's not directly acquiring customers. It's not directly hiring employees. It's not directly moving it down your product roadmap. And, and so it's, it's important to understand what those, what those expectations are. And, and for, for friends and family, um, that's where you're generally more in control of setting expectations. But, and I bet a lot of entrepreneurs that regret not setting what those expectations were, um, initially and making it clear and putting it in writing so that, you know, if, if, you know, if, if you know, some a friend from college, um, you know, Calls years later said, "Hey, like, you know, when am I going to get a return?" You can at least refer to to expectations that that were set um, to avoid a, a distraction. But that is important, um, just in anything.
1: Else. Yeah. So, what was the biggest lesson you learned in the process of building that company that allowed you to change your strategy with this this new company that you're running?
0: Wow. Um, where do I start? You know, when when I when I look back to how I started my first month after dropping out of, of college, I feel like I was raised by wolves, and that mm. I I had no idea what what I was doing, and I just kind of figured things out as, as I went along, and I I described it as like you know a handyman trying to build a skyscraper. You know? <laughs> Someone if a professional construct archetype would look it's like okay, why why do you have plumbing going through there and like like but 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 it works. And, um, with, you know, growing a business yourself out of cash flow, it, it's like running down the street where you're limited by your own oxygen. If you trip and fall, you can get back up. Not a big deal. With, with being venture back, it's like you're, you're seeing downhill. You're going a lot faster. But if you trip and fall, like it's going to be a lot harder to get back up. And that's, it's usually when you, when you see in the news, like with we work and other large blow ups, it's because they're skiing downhill. You can do a lot of things faster, but. But you have to, you have to really be on your game. You have to really know what you're doing. And it affords you to do things you otherwise couldn't afford to do out of your own cash flow, such as hiring professional executives. Um, and I feel like, like that was, uh, really my experience in getting an MBA and learning from the people around me. And it is very hard to also be learning while you're doing. And, and you have to hire people that are better than you in, in areas, which, which also includes having a good answer to the question of, why would someone smarter than you want to work for you? Like, that's, that's an important question to, to, to ponder. Um, but I, I, I would say, uh, you know, specifically it's understanding the the, the type of business that, that you want and that is it possible to do it without um, raising outside money? And because raising money early is, is very dilutive and, and understanding, you know, what, what, what that means. Whereas once you have product market, market fit, once you have viability, um it's easier to raise money that's less dilutive where where you're you're getting a, a higher valuation. So meaning you're having this, you're selling a smaller percentage of the company um for for a, a large amount of, of, of cash instead of you know having to give a substantial portion or control of the company.
1: Yeah. But I think the the luxury of raising capital is what you described because I think we both being entrepreneurs, and you know, I know your current company, you're self-funding it, and you're running it with the, you know customer-funded business, right? You're you're growing with what customers are paying you. But the challenge with that is you do need those critical leadership functions. Those are not cheap hires, right? And and how what what have you seen to work really well for you to be able to have those talent to come join you when the cash is just going out and you need to to really be, you know, running on all cylinder to build that company in the early days.
0: Yeah. I remember in the very early days, you know, 20 years ago, when um, I couldn't, I could not afford to hire the people that I knew that that I needed, and I adopted a mindset of where I would treat people like they were doing me a favor, because a lot of those really folks that they were doing me a favor in in coming to work with me for what I could afford to pay them. And that, that's how I kind of backed into a mindset of, of servant leadership, which I, I still have to this day. And I, I don't take any anyone or anything for, for granted. Um, I, I think that that's also kind of an inherent challenge of, of any entrepreneur where you're inherently a generalist and that you have to be comprehensively competent. And it's also a... a it, it's kind of a, a, a philosophical dilemma on why most small businesses stay small. Because entrepreneurs tend to start businesses in things that they're passionate doing. Like an example would be is someone who loves food starting a restaurant, and they love they love cooking. They they're passionate about it. And the, the problem is is that in order to to grow a business, that means that you ha- that you have to work on the business, and that your daily activities are abstracted. You're you're not directly doing it. If you, if you love cooking. You you can't be the chef and grow in, in, into you know dozens of, of, of restaurants. You have to be you know dealing with 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 you know real estate and dealing dealing with 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 banks, and that you you're, you're, you get further and f- further away of doing what you love. And so so and it and it's completely okay to 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 have a small business. I mean, there, there's over three hundred thousand small businesses in in, in the U.S. It, it's completely okay. Actually, I think that number may be low. Um, and, 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 that's fine that that's, there's more than one right answer. And so I think it's important to know what you want and why do you want it? And, and what are you willing to do to get it? Uh, because when there's a mismatch, that's when I find people that tend not to be happy. Um, they, they, they don't appreciate the, the journey.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that servant leadership? Because I know that's, uh, you know, when you think about leadership, it's not serving isn't the first thing people you know have in mind. So, can you elaborate on what you mean by servant leadership, and how do you practically live that out?
0: Sure, sure. Um, you know, one one of the things that that one of the values that I was I was raised that is really important to me is is being fair and and not having hypocrisy. I I, I would say that's my biggest pet peeve. And that if if it's okay for me to do something, it's okay for anyone else. There's no there's no double standards. Um, and, and that I think that that embodying that is is very important, but also to to truly have have a great team and to to have a good reason on why it makes sense for you to be a benevolent dictator, because if if you lead by consensus, that's that's weak. In that, by making decisions based on what you can get everyone to agree on, that's by definition, least common denominator and and no innovation happens that way. When the most important decisions of consequence, you're not gonna make everyone happy and and, and being being okay with that and and having a a consistent mindset, because one of the most important things as a leader is is that you're consistent, that whenever someone comes to you for a decision that they already know what you're gonna say, because what consistency builds trust, and, and the best way to get people to trust you is for them not to have to trust you because they already know what you're going to say. They already know what you're going to do to find, to find your competitive advantage and, and to really be deliberate at defining what is the culture of, of your company and then how, how are you measuring that culture and how are you being consistent with how you're defining those standards. Because when I hear from executives about some of the challenges with hiring and retaining millennials and, and, and Zoomers, you know that they, they often will try to get a ping pong table or get a kegerator. and and what what, what they don't realize is that I, the millennials and Zoomers they they have a, a a thirst for leadership. They want good leadership, and there there is a shortage of, of good leadership. And and I, there's a lot, also a lot of times people that are great leaders are not good managers, and most companies require though they don't bifurcate those roles. In that, if you want to be in leadership, you also have to be in management, and I think that, that that they're actually two very different skill sets. When when you look at the people that are the best leaders, they tend to be very emotionally intelligent. They 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 tend to be very very solution focused, great at problem solving. They tend to be very very competent, very very confident. Um, they, they they tend to be uh, great learners, and they love to share. They love to teach, and and when you look at at some of you know, what it takes to be a good manager. It's more about consistency, accountability, attention to detail, and and, and also some, some of the, the the less pleasant aspects of, of interactions when when you're holding people accountable and and you need to do it constructively, you know that, that's it's important to do that tactfully, but you know not not all leaders you know enjoy doing that or, or are good at at doing that or, or being being consistent and, and proactive with that, and so um, by ha- Having a structure where you can separate out between uh, leaders and managers, I, I think that, that that's important, um, and and being deliberate with with your culture. But but it, it really comes down to in, in your core, like like do you appreciate your employees? Do you appreciate what they do? Do you value them? Do you, do you really do that? And do do you show that? I think that that's that's important because if if you don't, then don't expect them to value you.
1: Mm. You know, I recently heard an interview where Dharma Shah, you know, uh, HubSpot's CTO, technically, but uh, one of the demands that he had when he partnered with um, Brian Halligan, he said, I do not want, I do not want to be the CEO and I want zero direct reports. I mean, a company that has like 7,000 employees and now worth over $25 billion, he still holds a role with zero direct reports, and which to me was kind of crazy. So do you think, it's like some people could be leaders they're really good at leading, but they just don't have a, the skill to manage people. Could it be that their you know managerial skills are not is lacking, but they might have like you said good emo- emotional intelligence they can read people, they can read the room, they can you know com- command people to to do great things and challenge them to be great in the organization?
0: I think that most entrepreneurs are terrible managers myself um, <laughs> myself included management is not not a strength of mine. Uh, I, I think I think that you know I, I'm a student of history, and, that, and that I've I've learned about many different leaders, great leaders throughout history. Um, you know, from, from all areas, from all aspects, both you know, r- religious, political, you know, military, uh, you, know, you know, nonprofit, civic, uh, otherwise, um, because th- there's different aspects of leadership that that are appropriate at, at different times or most effective at different times. But when you look throughout some of the greatest leaders throughout history like they there no one talks about how great managers they are most of them are not good <laughs> managers and so I you can't be all things to to everyone and that's even though a challenge of, of being a, a an entrepreneur is, is the need to be comprehensively competent it, it's it's about being good enough to get something done until you can find someone better in that area and then get get someone else to do that and so it, it's also recognizing that and i and I think that that's that's a, a a sign of strength for any leader or entrepreneur to admit what they're not good at. Because I'm not impressed by anyone who doesn't share what they're not good
1: at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that being vulnerable enough, right, to be able to admit their weakness is also a strength. Because if they don't recognize their weakness, they're not going to find their complementary um, you know, leader that they need to bring into the organization, or whoever else, right? Like that can. It's like in marriage as well, right? You got to know what you're good at and what the what your partner is good at. So, it's, same thing is true in business as well.
0: No, oh, a- absolutely, because you don't want to be the limiting factor. And I think that most businesses that want to grow that don't, it's because the the entrepreneur, or the leader, is not willing to admit what what they're not good at or how they're limiting that that factor because. You know, same thing I I, t- I tell entrepreneurs that that if, if you're if you don't love your job and love the people you work with it's your own fault like look in the mirror do, do something about it and, yeah. and and I think I think that a lot of times that you know it's really hard to overcome inertia and, and inertia happens mentally as well when you've been doing something a certain way for a long time it's, it can be hard to change and sometimes you just you need a you you need a, a nudge that is strong enough to overcome that, that inertia. And when I look at everything that I've read and learned about people that are you know, the 1% most successful compared to the 99%, I would say that the one consistent, most impactful aspect is that people in the 1%, they can change before they have to.
1: Hmm.
0: Whereas most people, especially if it's a significant thing, they have to hit rock bottom before they change. But to be able to change before you have to, that is the most impactful key to success. It's really easy to say, easy to understand, very hard
1: to do. Most certainly. You know, when you were talking about the leadership and, you know the, you know, the ability to kind of know their strengths and also recognize the strengths in other people, you know, this is personally from having observed, you know, hundreds of sales conversations and being in rooms with a lot of leaders, right? I've noticed where leaders don't have the skill in certain areas, let's say sales or marketing, but they don't recognize that that they don't have that skill and they might even put a person that's incompetent to fill that role. They don't recognize that person isn't good enough to do that job, but they still let that person run with it. And you see the company is stagnant and they can't go past a certain level, they can't surpass a certain you know challenge in in growth trajectory, but they just not move, they're not willing to change. And I don't know if you've seen that in your own personal life working with other business leaders where the leader is the problem because they're not able to recognize what's actually holding that company back.
0: I I I have I I would say that. It's you know fundamentally, it's having the right people that's in 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 a group. And you know, I've read hundreds of, of business books, and and I don't think any one is is really significant consequential. It's it's more about the themes that you tend to see in across the board in many of them, and that oftentimes it's. You have to say, you have to say the same thing in different ways to get it to resonate with different people. And, and there, there's, you know, certainly things that, that I've heard before, but then I didn't really understand it until it was explained in a different way. And so that's why I think that's good having, having that variety out there. But, you know, just like where they're saying, you know, right people on the bus, wrong people off the bus, right people in the right seats. I, I mean, ultimately, like having the, the right people on the team, like that's, that's what, what can, can make or break companies and that. You know, that, that's one of the most important aspects of, of a leader and, and, and also being not afraid of making tough decisions. And, and that's related with, with culture, having, having the right culture for the right, for the type of company that furthers its mission and and that understanding, you know, what the mission of the company is and what culture is needed to drive that and, and having it be not about you not about the entrepreneur. It has to be about the, the, the company. You know, a, a, a company is legally a person. There's corporate personhood. So it's it's like it's like a, if you look at it like a child, where where you want it to be successful, and and not you know a forty year old living in your basement, and and you want to be proud of it. That that's as an entrepreneur. If you look at it from that standpoint, that you want to be proud of it. Um, you know, you you don't always control it especially as as companies get bigger or or, or you, know, you lose control, like you always will be the baby daddy, but but you don't always control it and and you know on that being consistent with that culture, which means you know one of the i think the tough decisions is deciding you know, are you a meritocracy here? Do you value talent over tenure and it's e- it's easy to say oh we 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 value you know talent well. But is, are you a leader that's strong enough where if you have someone that's been in a role for several years and then someone that was hired you know, several months ago is a lot stronger, you know, who do you promote into leadership first? Like, Are, are you actually making those tougher decisions when you, when you have great people, but are you truly promoting and putting the, the best people in the best positions? And, and, and every decision that you make, you know, recognize and, and know that you're sending a message whether you want to or not. And oftentimes, as a leader, some of the loudest messages you send is about what you don't do, or what you don't say, and and just being being cognizant of that.
1: Yeah, those are some great points because I think you mentioned earlier about that one percent, the most successful one percent are the ones that can make the change that you know before they need to make that change. And I think it's recognizing all of those things that you mentioned. Uh, it's just crazy, crazy valid points. So let's talk a little bit about you personally. Obviously, you know you've been an entrepreneur. You probably have. You know, a whole lot of things. And I know you got a bunch of other sidekicks going on too that we haven't even touched on. Uh, so you're running this new company and you have all these different things that you have to do as priorities. What are some of your productivity hacks? What, how do you get stuff done?
0: I've always looked at time like how the Native Americans looked at Buffalo. Nothing goes to waste. And and I think that it's important to be deliberate where I say, okay, during this time I'm going to work and focus on work. During this time I'm not going to. Um, I think that that being organized and finding ways to be organized is is important. Um, avoiding context switching when when you're switching from you know like a a, a very you know left brain task like if, if you're you know doing your your accounting or, or looking at numbers and then you switch to a creative task where where you're you're you know, looking at your sales strategy and, and reviewing marketing materials like it, it takes time to switch your brain to different contexts so. Mm-hmm. Being able to to plan out your day to minimize how many times you're gonna to have to change context. Uh, it gets harder as you get older. I've, I've I've noticed that you know, 15 years ago I could switch between different things quickly. <laughs> then now it's like, wait, okay, hold on, I got my brain's gotta gotta shift over. Um also tracking your your biorhythms and and just like I did this for several years until I really understood myself where every day make a calendar appointment for yourself like either in the early morning or afternoon and and just indicate your your energy level on a scale from 1 to 10 and just 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 to make a note of it and do that for several months and then you know put it into excel and then you'll you'll see that you have a cycle um, it, you know women understand this better than men but but men and and, and you know other genders as well um, you know every human has a cycle And so, understanding your own energy cycle, and just just keep it focused on your energy level. Uh, I say that because if you if you try to track mood, there there's a lot of outside factors that that could affect that. But but if you say an energy level, it's more about your your internal body rhythm. Because then, when you start to know what times of and usually cycles are between like you know thirty and forty five days, you start to know when you will be at your higher energy or when you be at lower energy, and so. You tend that that allows you to the like to the strategic planning tasks that require the most thought. Plan those for when you're high energy. Plan vacations for when you you're expecting to be lower energy um, to to make to make the most use of that time. But also for tasks that you do on a regular basis, um, find ways to make that as efficient as possible. Um, for me, you know, email was something that I uh, struggled with for years until about. Five years ago, I found a way to make my email as efficient as possible, to where I spend as little time as possible on it, and um, I hit peak efficiency with that. I haven't haven't been able to improve it um, ever since.
1: Are there any hacks like the do delete, delegate, defer set of a strategy that you use for the email?
0: So, in in a nutshell, it's you you set up you set up folders and set up folders by by large categories. So like in like all internal emails or all notifications, all receipts, like you shouldn't have more than like you know four or five folders and then create rules so that emails automatically go into those folders and have those rules be based off of a pattern. So like for internal emails, it's everyone that has the same you know, email domain as you. So like you should not be creating rules for individual email addresses, that's way too tedious. And then after you do that, you have a search folder that shows all your unread emails that are already in folders. Mm-hmm. And then you only go in that search folder because then then what that means is you're no longer manually moving emails. Manually moving emails around is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. It's also very important to have the same exact setup on your computer as your phone. So no matter if you're whether you're on a mobile device or whether you're at your computer, you're doing the same thing. And then what that means is that whenever an email comes in, if no action is needed, well then you just you read it and that's it. You don't have to do anything, or you or you could delete it. Um it's quick action, you can re, you can respond, you can you can forward. Uh, or if follow up is needed, you flag it for follow up. And so what that means is I spend all of my time either in my unread or in my, my follow up um search folder that shows all my emails flagged for follow up and when it's done, you just click the and take off the flag and then the email's already where it needs to be. And so I, I'm never moving manually moving emails, and I'm never having to touch an email any more than absolutely necessary. But I think that, that a lot of people, they, they lose a lot of time in, in email.
1: So is, yeah, can, we, can we talk a little bit about your why? Obviously you've had a couple of different you know, companies that you started, you have a lot of other side projects that we didn't get to talk about. So what's your why, what motivates you, what gives you the drive?
0: You know that, that that's a great question, and I I think that it's important to have questions that you ask yourself on you know a, a, a regular basis to understand are you changing and are you evolving um, because I think a lot of people don't realize how how their own mind is changing and and one of the questions I've been asking myself for about twenty years probably at least annually is when I'm on my deathbed when I'm one hundred and fifty. What do I want to be able to think before I die? What do I want to be able to think about my life? And because it's working backwards. we okay. What, I want, what do I want to be able to think where I can die satisfied and then work backwards? Okay. How do I make sure that I achieve that? And, and, and that answer has been consistent for 20 years in that I want to be able to be confident that if somehow the world is better than I, I, I'm leaving the world better than I found it. I, I'm not saying I'm going to change the world. I just don't want to be a net drain on the world. And that I had, I had a good time. I had a lot of fun. Hmm. And, 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 you know, keep it simple like that, where I, you know, the, the, there's, there's always going to be people that want to burn the world down and people that want to build the world up. I'm, I'm in the category that I want to build the world up and, and I want to have a good time doing that. And, hmm. and so asking yourself, you know, a question that, um, that, that helps you internally know, are you changing? Because it's, it's hard when you're looking from the outside, from the inside out and and it's also important to to know like what gives life meaning and and what i've what i've learned is that me that what gives life tends to give life meaning is responsibility and for for most people you know there comes a point where they're looking for more responsibility looking for more meaning and that's usually having you know having kids having children having a family that gives that gives meaning for most people and and you know for for a lot of entrepreneurs Sometimes you you get to you know your your mid to late thirties and you and you're thinking okay I'm, I'm looking forward to having less responsibility not not more mm-hmm. and and I I don't know many entrepreneurs that are short for meaning they they, they their lives have a have a lot of meaning and are, and are pretty fulfilling um, but but you know the, the thing is 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 I never really needed a why in that I was born and I've always been insatiably curious and irrationally skeptical where I, I wanted to learn everything I could and I don't believe anything that I hear. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it 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 uh you know creates some some challenges, but but you know it it, it works for me and and that I I think that it's important to be doing things for the right reason. And when you like the challenge and when you appreciate the challenge and you want to do something because you can do it right and you could do it well and you could become the best and you're genuinely curious and passionate about it. And you focus on what problem are you solving and, and you, you fall in love with the problem instead of the solution. Then, then everything else becomes easy. When, when I see people that are struggling, it's, it's, because they're, they're not in love with the, the problem or they're not even in love with the solution. They're just trying to make money. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, growing up poor and having my parents fighting over money, that, that, was, that was hard. And, and I remember you know, seeing the movie Blow with, you know, with Johnny Depp where you know, he was in a similar situation and he grew up and said, I, I, I want to make so much money that I don't have, ever have to fight about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I remember thinking the, the, the same thing and, and that money, money is, is a result. But but it's 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 a means to an end, and that if that's if that's all that you want, then you're never going to be happy. It, it's about find find something that you you enjoy doing that that is also valuable.
1: Hmm. So knowing what you know today, what advice would you give your younger self?
0: It's it's kind of like the dilemma of cloning yourself, in that if you were to create a clone of yourself right now with your exact DNA. It would not be you because it didn't have your upbringing and your life experience and that you're just as much of that, you know, as you are your DNA. And so that's also the dilemma is that you know, whatever I would tell myself, I, I wouldn't be me. Like if I if, if I told myself the winning lottery numbers, you know, for that year and and I you know won a hundred million dollars, I would most likely be a degenerate now. <laughs> and, and because Oftentimes, like necessity is the mother of invention, and that you know, just like when there's was this, this article I read about the, this gentleman that had uh, you know, two two children, one named winner, one named loser, and and you know, it's long story short, the the, the child named loser became very successful, and the child named winner, you know, was was not. And, and so I think I think that oftentimes, and that's always blown my mind about there's there's so many ironies of human nature that are just the opposite of what you would expect. In that, the people that have had the hardest lives tend to be the happiest people <laughs> in my life, and then the people that are most miserable tend to have had the easiest lives. Like it, it, it's, and of course, that's not true in all cases, but I, I would like to to think that I would tell myself um, to avoid some some bad decisions that I made that were very costly and that affected me, and that were were hard emotionally. I mean, some some mistakes that I made, you know, I, I know took years off my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I did that, I don't know that I would be in a position to offer that advice. So then you you kind of created your own paradox. <laughs> so, um, but I, I I think that learning from others and having a mentor is the closest thing that you can get to to doing that. Because no matter what you're doing, you're not the first person to to do that. And so if 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 you you know don't get drunk off your own Kool Aid and fall too in love with your own idea and take the time to find people that have done this before and have been successful or unsuccessful and learn from them, you're essentially doing the same thing without the time travel paradox.
1: Awesome. Well, Jeff, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for sparing this afternoon and sharing your ideas with our audience. You're welcome. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping
0: businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.